Patchwork is a podcast from the Office on Violence Against Women at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington. Patchwork offers a glimpse behind the scenes of a legal movement called the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. VAWA provides federal grants to help women at local, state, and national levels. Patchwork explains how VAWA awards are made, shows what happens after funds arrive in communities, and shares stories of help and hope. Patchwork brings you the voices of people on the front lines combating domestic and sexual violence. Our efforts to serve victims and hold offenders accountable create stories that knit us together and propel us forward. Welcome to Patchwork. Before we get started, we want you to know that in this episode we discuss gender-based violence. The content might not be suitable for all ages, and it might be upsetting for some listeners. If you or someone in your life is struggling with these issues, please know that there are caring and helpful people available right now to support you and help guide you to safety. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. They can be found at thehotline.org. And the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 800-656-HOPE, or 800-656-4673. You can visit them at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. It's terrible in the sense that the work that I do often leads to the family finding out that their child is, has uh, passed. It also gives the family some closure rather than always wondering what happened. It is something that I can do that I can return back my uh, training to, uh, to the, to the, to society and the public good. So people who are interested as archeologists or as crime scene investigators the training of archaeology is is very necessary. David Hunt is a physical and forensic anthropologist and archaeologist at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. He specializes in mortuary analysis and the curation of skeletal remains, and he's known for his expertise in craniometric analysis, which is the study of skull measurements. For more than 20 years, Dr. Hunt has voluntarily shared his skills, experience, and enthusiasm for teaching to support the work of one of DOJ's most vital grantee organizations, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC. You may have never heard of NICMIC, but it is the 24-hour nerve center near Washington, D.C. that works with law enforcement to try and bring home missing children. The center uses AMBER alerts, state-of-the-art cyber investigative techniques, and synchronize efforts across all levels of law enforcement to rescue children. When a child is not rescued before it's too late, Nick Mick helps bring closure to families and offenders to justice when a child has been murdered. Thousands of family members are searching for missing children today, so I want to pause right here and ask that you go to the Nick Mick website as soon as you can to look at the photos of the missing because you can make a difference. Facial recognition by strangers is one of the primary tools that brings missing children home. 
At the Office on Violence Against Women, we are very proud to support NICMIC by raising awareness of their work. Today, I want to share with you a story about Dr. Hunt's work. He is a volunteer from a world-renowned museum, and his efforts help families across the country. One of the most challenging aspects of identifying the remains of a child is piecing together the forensic clues to identify the victim. Putting a face on skeletal remains is essential to identification. With limited resources, Nick Mick relies on Dr. Hunt's voluntary efforts to perform advanced forensic analysis. He applies the science of anthropology to guide artists who then in turn use their vision to put a face on the missing child. In this teamwork, Hunt has collaborated with Nick Mick forensic artists on over 200 cases involving facial reconstruction and photographic superimposition. Dr. Hunt's expertise and dedication was instrumental when he assisted in providing an assessment on a child who had never been identified in Las Vegas. For two years, it was a mystery. And in June, 1999, uh, the child's facial reconstruction was finally created with Dr. Hunt's help. It was shown on the TV show, America's Most Wanted, and almost immediately, someone called the show and explained that the sketch looked like a picture of a child on a missing poster they had seen across the community. The tip moved the Las Vegas Metro Police to check the dental records and confirm the child's identity. That was the case of uh, Michael Rainey, was his name, the boy the 10-year-old child at um, in Las Vegas. And uh, he had been misidentified earlier by the police because of the clothing, et cetera, as being a female. And so they had done a two-dimensional facial reconstruction there in Las Vegas that uh, made it as a female. And so there was no never a hit. And so when I looked at the skull, I said that the teeth just looked too large, and I measured a few of them, you know, just and they fell out more into the male range than the female range. And um, so we did as a male, and I think it was in within uh, hours that it went up on the TV in the local area that he was identified. And I've worked with the 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 unit there since that time, uh, helping them. Well, let me ask you this. Um, when you start one of these cases, there are some assumptions that have been made in the investigation, and it sounds like you go in with a, with a fresh eye and really just see what the bones tell you. Is that right? I've always had a deal. Don't tell me anything when I come. Let me, you know, hand it to me and say, okay, what do you think? Uh, sometimes I'm asked to come in because they've already gotten some information. So they ask me to come in to help guide them in you know, positioning of the nose or is it what asymmetry might be there or if there's some other um, individualizing trait that is, can be seen in the, uh, in the bone that they can uh, then add to that facial reconstruction to um, bring about a more individualized uh, 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 visage of what that, that person looks like. I should just say that I'm really one cog in the wheel of uh, in that whole system because they use age progressions, 
using facial uh, photographs of other children. They do morphing from the parents' photographs when they were of the age of that child. Uh, and, and then with that child's face, then, you know, then um, remake the photograph to, uh, to age them so that what they'd look like later. Uh, their work is, is fascinating and, and also uh, amazing in the sense that you have to be an artist to be able to make these faces look like human beings. In another case known as the Southgate Jane Doe, Dr. Hunt provided an assessment that included a range, ancestry, and facial features for an unidentified victim. Understanding the complexities of the case, he knew that additional information would help local law enforcement, so he used the CT scanner at the Smithsonian to help identify the victim. Dr. Hunt, most people would not know there's a CT scanner in the Smithsonian. No, generally not. There are a few little sign. There's like a signage down there in the osteology section that shows Doug Owsley and, and Doug Ubelacher, who are both also forensic anthropologists. And there, it's just a picture that's up next to uh, some of the bones as you enter into the osteology hall. So there's a little segment there uh, about forensic uh, work, but not really all that much more. And then in the, um, there's a little suggestion of of forensic work that's in the exhibit uh for the for the egyptian uh for egypt and the egyptian mummies and the mummies you know have show how you can tell age and sex from the skeleton and then the ct scanner so they do get to see some of what's going on uh but you're right, uh, two floors down, walking around, you know, they also probably don't know that there's like four and a half million dead mosquitoes on, on pins up in the, you know, in the entomology section either. <laughs> so, you know, you don't, you, you never really uh, uh, grasp the, the extent of what the collections are there at the museum. Um, I don't know what the figure is. I think the Smithsonian says that it's, you'd have to, I, I'd have to look at something like 24.6 million objects or, or catalog records for, that are in the Smithsonian. Some complex investigations are solved in part by forensic information about where the people lived before they died. Dr. Hunt can sometimes determine through examination of human remains where the person lived. One of the most high profile cases like this was the quadruple murder in Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Dr. Hunt, how do bones tell you where somebody lived? Well, the, uh, the biochemical materials that are in, in the bone uh, give uh, give you evidence of minerals uh, that were absorbed by the body. Um, any of the bio material that biological material that might still be present in bone. From the isotopic uh, information there, you can get an idea of what um, what things that they were eating, um, and the evidence that would show there 
are no more now in in the groundwaters and you know how much limestone and granite and things like that were in the system that uh, they were they were uh, ingesting. You can possibly get um, like some DNA information from, and that DNA information may give us uh, uh, evidence for. Um, well, certainly now you you know you can get the sex chromosome, so now telling the sex of an individual is more accurate by using. But in there are but there are limitations to that in that we sometimes have to um, not be able to take samples due to either religious or cultural uh, constraints. And so some of the old methods are still uh, more often done first, and then the more advanced types, depending on whether we can get permissions to do so, um, are 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 then done or evaluated. Families of missing children have obtained a sense of closure and killers have been brought to justice thanks to the voluntary efforts of Dr. Hunt. Since he started volunteering in 1997, he has given countless hours to help the team at NCMEC and they call him an invaluable asset. Share a little bit about what it's been like for you to volunteer your efforts in, in this, in this way? Well, um, I, it, it is, it is a, something that I can do that I can return back my, uh, training to, uh, to the, to the, to society and the public good. And I don't want to say it's satisfaction because that sounds kind of egocentric. Um, it's it's the fact that I know that I'm I'm helping, and that I know that I can um, I can contribute. Um, but that's yeah. So I've I've uh, I've been very happy with helping them. I've always looked forward to helping them. I can't I I can barely do stick figures, and so you know I know what I see and I know what I wanted to say, but they're the ones who make it, you know, and so they're really the you know the heroes there now it's terrible in the sense that the work that i do often leads to uh the family finding out that their child is has uh, passed away you know from you know, a lot of times from traumatic experience but uh it also gives the family some closure rather than always wondering what happened what would you like young people who are entering the science field to know as they, you know, learn more and become the, the future leaders in, uh, in forensics? Well, I do believe that we are uh, evolving very much into much more of the uh, biochemistry-based analyses. Um, our methods that we use for the last century of looking at morphological characteristics that's still important. That's still very important, but uh, because you need to know the bones, you need to know what you're working with before you then add on the chemical analysis of that. And then the two of them can work hand in hand in, uh, in your, your interpretations. 
Um, but I think for a lot of students who are interested in and uh, uh, in forensics, are need to have a good chemistry background. Now, um, chemistry, no matter what, other than doing some um, soil analysis, can't tell you where somebody's buried and can't excavate them out. So people who are interested as archaeologists or as crime scene investigators, the training of archaeology is, is very necessary. So if you're going to be doing something like a, you know, a burial, where you want to excavate the burial, a clandestine burial, um, you need to, as an archaeologist, you do it where once you've moved something, you never can put it back. So you've got to record everything that you do and everything that you come across before you go removing it. And that is really no different than a scene investigator who, if you move something and you don't document where something is, it's no longer use, useful in court. So an archaeologist needs to have those, those trainings. And if you want to do uh, medical uh, or legal type of work like that, then you, and you want to do it as a field investigator, then that is something that you should have training in. And we have tried for years and years and years to do more scientific level uh, layering of the tissues and uh, locations of of the bony material. Bony uh, material is the basis for putting um, tissue back on and doing these in a scientific matter, manner so that you have a quantitative as well as a qualitative level. And um, it's never, nobody who does facial reconstructions ever thinks that you are going to get the face of the person is going to look exactly like a picture of that person. If they do, that's, you know, that's wonderful. But you never fully expect that to be what you're going to get. What you're really wanting to do is to make a visage of the face that may show some of those individualized traits that are there, uh, you know, a rotated tooth, uh, uh, asymmetry where the nose is curved a little bit more, or it's got a hook in it, you know, so that it has a large bump on the on it, or uh, the forehead, you know, from evidence so that there's there's been some injury that took place, so they probably have a scar that's across their forehead or something like that that you're looking for. Those are going to be the triggers that if somebody's out there looking like like Mr. Rainey, somebody's out there looking for a person. Our hope is that what those features that we show there will trigger a person to see, uh, see that and go and then ask somebody to investigate it. That's what we're hoping. Right. Dr. Hunt, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. This has been Wonderful to talk to you and, and uh, so grateful for all the work that you've been doing. Well, uh, thank you too. Thank you for listening to Patchwork. 
Please let us know what you would like to hear on a future episode by sharing your questions with us. You can tweet us at OVWJustice, send an email to patchwork at usdoj.gov, or give us a call at 202-307-6026. If you like this podcast, please help us expand the conversation by sending this episode to someone you think may enjoy hearing what we shared. And if you would like to help us reach even more people, please take a minute to review this episode. Patchwork is made possible by help from everyone here at OVW, but Minha and Portia Obing work tirelessly to pull all of these pieces together here and on our website. Thanks for joining us. Thread by thread, we offer insights through Patchwork. <laughs>